Hello and welcome to a special edition of Here's the Pitch, 2019 style. Thank you for joining me today. I'm going to play uh, portions of interviews of broadcasters that I've done here uh, over the time during this podcast. Joe Buck, Bob Costas, Greg Amsinger, and Chip Carey. So four good names, and there's a lot of good content on all these interviews, I thought, but this is uh, kind of the four best parts of these interviews, and um, in case you've are afraid to scroll all the way down and find some of these older interviews uh, early on. Uh, Joe Buck, I interviewed him in his car when he had written his book, and uh, it was kind of fun. So we did have a chance to catch up, and I'll go ahead and start with that. But first, don't forget about my title sponsor, Masses Restaurants. There's five locations in St. Louis, stlmasses.com. It's my favorite place because they are my sponsor, but I love the food there. I can just tell you about how great the food is, and I don't feel my nose growing. I go there all the time. I go there once a month. Sometimes I go twice a month, and I'll have pasta, or I'll have pizza. Last time I had the Big Al Special, named after my father. It's a great pizza. They have fish. They have poultry. It's just a great place, stlmasses.com. There's five locations in St. Louis. That website will tell you how to find them, where to find them, and let you look at the menu. And of course, as I always tell you, I'm always looking for sponsors. So hopefully, if you're interested in sponsoring, here's just a good portion of uh, what you'll hear on this podcast throughout the year as I uh, continue to work up big guests and fun stories from people, uh, big names, small names, medium names, uh, things that interest me. So once again, Masses Restaurants, they're the title sponsor, but I'm always looking for sponsors. You can contact me on Twitter. Brad Strobinger is my name. You can find me there. You can also go subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just type in ST Weekly. Would love some subscribers over there. I post all these podcasts on YouTube as well, so there's plenty of places to hear it. Now on Spotify and Google Play. So the podcast is everywhere, but here I'm going to give you, uh, like I said, four clips of my favorite portions of these interviews with uh, my favorite broadcasters, or some of my favorite broadcasters. And Once again, start with Joe Buck. And I've always... Uh, enjoyed Joe Buck. He's always been good to me. Um, I will go ahead and point out a link here of uh, some of the older interviews I've done with him. Starting in 1993, when I was doing a cable access show, Joe was just starting up his broadcast career in St. Louis. So, you know, we we basically had the same kind of career path. Um, So you'll see that. But here, I, I was basically interested in about the haters. He's got so many haters out there. He's on every Super Bowl and every World Series. He's on every Super Bowl every three years. Um, but he's on every World Series since 1996. He's the voice that you, ha- you have to hear. You can't hear anybody else if you're watching. And so then the advent of social media came, and people could go and criticize and critique. And that's what people do on Twitter. They, they don't really want to tell you, hey, Joe, great job. So I was interested in that, and uh, that's where this conversation starts. What? I mean, what was the main, was it, I know, and I've heard you say it was for you, but was it possibly some point trying to win fans? Are you trying to win fans? Do you care about fans? Do you even care about that sort of thing? I mean, you're on Twitter, so you obviously you have a sense. You do have, uh, you know, you do both sports. Is that part of it at all, or was it really just kind of for you to be cathartic? It was It was literally all of that, and that's not a cop-out to your question. I, I think, one, I wanted to just get that, out of me and you know a lot of it has to do with my dad you know what what got the headlines was the hair plug lose your voice uh issue that i dealt with in 2011 but as you know having listened to the book 
that's that's kind of the jumping in point and then the story really happens and then you revisit it and then you kind of go to what's happened since then so it was kind of the driving force even behind writing the book that once i came out the other end of that i was like well i'm going to get this down on paper two do i want to win fans yeah who who wouldn't i mean i've done 19 world series and four super bowls and i i think that to a certain degree people have made their mind up about who they think I am or what they think I'm about or you know I can't tell you how many times I'll do a speaking engagement or I'll be around Rudd or some of these other guys and people go I didn't I didn't know you had a sense of humor and it's like really I mean you never hear me so and then the other part of it was yeah with the social media stuff like you said I am on Twitter now to be honest with you it's not always me tweeting. A lot of the times I'll send it to a publicist and they'll tweet it out only because, not because of laziness, only because a lot of the times it gets so nasty that, especially during October, when everybody thinks, you know, the Indians fans think I love the Cubs and the Cubs fans think I love the Indians and it just gets insane, that I'll just shove it over to Rachel, this publicist, and I say, here's what I want to say, here's the picture, you put it up. Because I, it's like the age-old... You know, whatever you do, don't look down. Whatever you do, don't touch this hot plate. You can't not touch the hot plate. And uh, so when I'm on there, I'm like, oh, let me just see. And then it's like, ugh, why am I doing this? It's it's a study. And it's like opening up the complaint box at uh, Macy's and looking for compliments. You're, it's just not going to happen. You seem like you've kind of gotten to the point where you're like, that's, that's what's going to be. But do you ever even have conversations with guys like, like Jim Nance or Al Michaels? And what's different is they don't do baseball. So you have that sport. And maybe is that their difference, do you think? Is it start there and then it creeps in? Because I don't think, it doesn't seem like Cowboy fans really hate you. you got Troy. I don't think Giants fans, maybe they, they hate Troy. But it really is a baseball thing. I've been in San Francisco and I've seen them do this. And I've seen it in Chicago with you. I mean, it is crazy. You get signs. You're lucky, man. You get signs. Al Michaels doesn't have a sign. There, there's a lot of sides to that, and there's a lot of good to that. There's, I, if I did what I did and nobody knew I was there or cared, that would be worse. You know, at least they know I'm there. Mm. But you're right. It is a baseball thing, and I get it. And I'll, I'll tell you why, why it kind of crystallized for me. I always thought I was right, but. First of all, I'm the national guy, so I have no home team. And when you have no home team and you're yelling for Chris Bryant's home run and then you're yelling for Kipnis's home run, well, the Cub fans only hear you yelling for Kipnis's home run, and they don't hear that all year. They have Cub announcers. They do 160 games. Then we show up at a time when they really care the most. They're living and dying, and here I am yelling for the other side now that's my job so they can like it not like it it's kind of ridiculous but then you take it another step because i'm yelling for the cub guy well not only do the indian fans not like it but the cardinal fans go well how can he yell for chris bryant of course isn't he a cardinal fan his dad made it so there's another layer to it but it crystallized for me this last year with the blues playoffs when they made it to the conference finals i i love kenny albert i think he does a great job in hockey and i love doc emmerich but I wanted to hear John Kelly and Darren Pang because they have the same rooting interest as I do when I'm watching the Blues. And that's who I listen to all year. And now when I'm, you know, biting my fingernails off and throwing stuff against the wall, it's not them. 
And so it's a foreign voice, and he's getting excited, whoever he is, for the other, the Sharks, as much as he is the Blues. So it's a, it's almost not personal. It's just kind of, you're the voice, and I'm going to tell you I hate you, but I don't know, I don't know they really hate me. See, you know, I saw a sign during one of those playoffs, Kenny Albert married Patrick Kane, and so that must have been you who had that, <laughs> that was you that had that sign. Yes, and uh, I'm. it was right, we did a double wedding, it was me and Schwarber, and then... Uh, <laughs> Him and Kane. But if it wasn't me and Schwarber, then it was me and Madison Bumgarner from two years before. So, you know, they they used the same joke on me and Schwarber as they used on Madison Bumgarner. Me, I'm like, guys, let's at least be original. You know, don't don't photocopy and manipulate old jokes. Let's let's be creative here. Well, it's a Twitter verse. They're not real creative. That's well, why. That's why they are. They are. Sometimes they are, but. Yeah, I again, I I don't. You know, take I it. have a little problem with Twitter. By the way, I just shared something with you. Probably reasons why I'm a little anti-Twitter. Well, yeah, and and that <laughs> it's. I think Twitter, for all of its good, and I think there is some good. I can go to a game if I'm on it. I can go to a game on a Sunday, and I can learn about what's going on in the NFL just by getting on and reading, you know, X, Y, and Z, Schefter, and whoever. But the, the negative side is if you let that stuff get to you, the previous stuff that we talked about, or your situation with with Twitter, with, uh, with Fox, then I think it can scare you out of having an opinion. And it can scare you out of being excited. And it can scare you out of being yourself. And, you know, I think about my dad or Harry Carey or Bob Prince or guys back in the day that had personality and a lot of the times it wasn't politically correct and if twitter was around then you know there are things my dad said on the air that i talk about in the book that they he wouldn't have finished the inning and it's just a different world so um you gotta wear a helmet sometimes but the positives far outweigh that negative and and the other thing is and i drone on individually person to person people are great it's kind of the mentality of us versus you when you're just a thing on Twitter. So it, it, it at the end of the day, doesn't really affect my life at all. Yeah, too many people have voices, though. I think there was a fun time back in the 80s when only Randy Carricker had a voice and Jack and right. Mike. Those were the voices. You listened to them. You could call them if you wanted. You could get through 436-7900. If you didn't get through, then you called the next night. As a kid, that's what I did. Yeah, no, that, and I, I was I was in the receiving end of that stuff, too, back then. Um was certainly a simpler time. I'm not ready to say it was a better time, but at least for the person sitting in that seat, it was a much freer time. Because, you know, these days, if you say anything that's got any color to it at all, any twist, comedic anything, or opinion anything, watch out. Because the avalanche, and especially at that level, when you're doing a World Series game for 35 million people or whatever it is, it's, it's going to start rolling downhill fast. A great thanks to Joe Buck, who uh, has always been great to me, and I enjoyed those stories very well. And like I said, this is a uh, kind of a best of, as I'll be kind of combing through. I've done a bunch of podcasts now to where I can find some of the better stuff, and I know some of them are uh, a little long, and you might not be interested in the subject matter, but I think these are the best pieces of these interviews. And now I'm going to do Bob Costas' interview. Bob uh, and I got to sit down at Wrigley Field. How cool. Um, we were sitting in the stands at Wrigley Field doing this podcast, so that right there is, is uh, awesome to me. I grew up 
watching Bob Costas and listening to Bob Costas. I remember getting an autograph from Bob Costas in 1986, and I thought it was the greatest thing. I said, this guy, he's on NBC. He's, he's on the World Series. He's on TV. He's the, he's the biggest, biggest deal in all of, of TV. And then he got bigger. Um, he started doing an interview show that aired after David Letterman, and it was a, a one-on-one interview show with no audience, and it was awesome. And so I really wanted to hear about that, but we start our conversation uh, in this portion talking about if he can continue to do commentaries on the NFL when maybe he's kind of not happy what the NFL is doing. And it turns out uh, about a year later, he left NBC, uh, Sunday Night Football Package, uh, and basically now has basically left NBC uh, outside of doing special Tom Brokaw type stuff uh, for the sports world. So it looks like Bob is into his uh, later portion of his career where he's going to just do what he wants to do. But we start our conversation here talking about doing commentaries like that and how it's kind of getting difficult for him. And then after that, we start talking about the later show he did where he interviewed some of the greatest guests. And really the only reason you're going to hear this interview, obviously it's Bob Costas and you can just listen to Bob talk about you know painting. But Bob throws a compliment my way that basically I will play on every resume tape you ever hear. So here's Bob Costas and I back, uh, I think it was September of 06, I'm sorry, September of 16, uh, us sitting at Wrigley Field and we start talking about uh, being critical of the NFL. And how do you balance that with what your your job is? Because you have the Sunday night uh, pulpit, you have um, your commentary at halftime, mm-hmm. and and you know I don't think you censor yourself. You said stuff before that you've had to kind of go out and explain before. Are these things that sometimes your bosses are saying, well, let's don't say that, Roger's in the house. I mean, how hard is it for you to kind of separate those? Well, I'd prefer to be in the position of covering the league as opposed to just presenting the league. You know, let's stipulate that many NFL games are extraordinarily exciting. And it's a unifying experience. You know, a grandfather takes their granddaughter or, or grandson. It's a cross-generational thing. You go to Lambeau Field. You, you get it. You get what it means. Um, and many of the people I've met in football, players, coaches, administrators, are among the best people I've met in sports. So my problem is not with that, but there are lots of issues surrounding the NFL, and I'd rather be able to cover them than just be somebody who's involved in presenting tonight's game. And I push as much as I can for a chance to cover them, and I give NBC credit for allowing me to do more of that than any other network sports announcer gets to do. We're not talking about great shows like Real Sports on HBO or Outside the Lines with Bob Lee on ESPN, but for a network presentation in and around the game itself, they give me more leeway than any other sports broadcaster gets, and I try not to abuse it, and I appreciate that. But the formats rein you in. Like, if, you, if we wanted to talk about all the aspects of franchise relocation that we've been talking about here, and obviously I'm taking advantage of the freedom of a podcast, and I could do it more concisely, but even so, if you've only got two minutes at halftime, you got to think, can I get in all the aspects of this that I'd want in order to make my case. Colin Kaepernick is an interesting story as we speak. There are things to be said for what he did, but there are also reasonable things to be said, not because you disagree that there are injustices to protest, but because you think that maybe he's made his point simplistically. Would you have enough time at halftime to say something worthwhile? You'd have enough time on HBO, 
you know, if they gave you 20 minutes on HBO, you might be able to have a really good conversation. So, you know, it, it's kind of, I feel some ambivalence about my position at NBC. My first thing that I have to remember always is I've been there for how long? <laughs> 36 years. They've been extraordinarily good to me. And because of that, I've had many incredible experiences, not just for myself, but for my family. And things I'll never forget and that I always enjoyed. And I'm appreciative of that. But is there a part of me that maybe is more journalistic or more inclined toward addressing the issues than many sportscasters? Yes. And am I frustrated that I can't do it to a greater extent? Yes. Wanted to ask you about your uh, show later. Um, I think that show, what you see it on YouTube. I used to watch it as a kid. You said 36 years at KMOX, so I was about three when uh, you started there. All right, NBC. I'm sorry. Yeah, you were at KMOX way earlier, but uh, you do it. You're still doing your your thing, which is awesome. But later was a show where you did interviews. And you did Gary Shandling, you did David right. Letterman, you did Ellie Wiesel. I remember you mentioning him before. Right. But the, the entertainment, I think when I look at it, first of all, I'm curious if you would even be able to do a show like that every night due to the entertainment not being what it was back then. Because I think you like name these people off. I, I'm not saying this just to be nice. These are among the most perceptive questions that I've received, all of them, including this one. So I said to someone the other day, uh, someone at NBC, they said, would you ever consider coming back and doing a show like Later? Even if it was only weekly as opposed to nightly. And I said, you know, I don't think I could do it as well. Because when I was in my late 30s through my mid-40s, I was kind of in the center cut of the, the cultural climate in America, at least for a large portion of the audience. I could brush up on Billy Joel or Bruce Springsteen or Ray Charles or Smokey Robinson, um, but I didn't need to turn to some production assistant and say, hey, who is that? You know, or tell, tell, me, tell me a little bit more about Taylor Swift. You know, it isn't that I don't know who Taylor Swift is. It just isn't as much a part of the life that I've led. Um, if you said to me, you're going to interview Robert De Niro tomorrow, I think I could ace it just the, the way I hope I would have aced it in, in 1990. If, if you said you're going to interview Zac Efron tomorrow, who I met at the Olympics and he seems like a really nice guy, I don't know if I'm the right guy to do it. You know, it, there, there comes a time when it's kind of your time. And then there comes a time when you transition into other things. You know, I, I think I can still call baseball for a long time. I think I can still cover sports issues for a long time. And there might be a handful of cultural figures that people would want to see me talk with. But on a nightly basis, I don't think that it's as much in my wheelhouse as it used to be. But, and I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, what you referenced talking about YouTube, when someone who had been on later passes away, it seems as if some portion or all of that interview shows up on YouTube. Somebody has saved it. Just yesterday, Gene Wilder died. Gene Wilder did an interview on Later that was so funny, so revealing, and yet so sweet and touching that you got a real sense of who Gene Wilder was while also seeing clips from the producers and Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles and hearing stories about Gilda Radner. When Glenn Fry died, I mean, I hadn't seen it, and someone told me, hey, look, it's on YouTube. I hadn't seen it in more than 20 years. 
But yeah, that was a pretty revealing interview of, of Glenn Fry. Same thing with Ellie Wiesel and, and Mike Wallace. So it was a privilege to do that show and to have the liberty, not only of half an hour each night, but if the guest was interesting enough, say, let's, let's do a double. Will you come? I'd always say, will you come back tomorrow night? person would say, sure. And then curiously, the next night we were wearing the same clothes. But, but it still seemed to work. But yeah, and my thing with this, and I, I'm going to continue to name names because Bill Murray and Chevy Chase, right. and these are all just right from that era where it's not the same. But did you have three? I mean, or did you ever? I mean, they, to me, they're biographies. And, That's and the, what they were. They, yeah. they were meant to be video biographies. And ideally, although because you have inventory, so sometimes you had to have somebody who just happened to be on a sitcom and it wouldn't necessarily go in a time capsule. But by and large, our operating principle was the person had to have a body of work, you know? They had to have a body of work that was worth discussing. And I think they respected you, too, because I, I think that's part of the deal. When you're, when you're a good interviewer, a Bill Murray starts to open up, and even Chevy. You know, everyone's yeah. seen Chevy on Johnny Carson. He's just not going to... I, and Paul McCartney's the one I think. I, to me, it's the one I love because you can you can watch it right now, and it's yep. like you did it yesterday. I'm so flattered that you remember all this. I, I well, you too. Remember. But I do, but that but I do I watch these a lot. And I what I think, Bob, me and you could do this together. We put these out on DVD. We we make a little money, me and you. You know what? People have said to me, why aren't these things better archived and more available? Um, and I have no idea. I don't own them. I'm happy that I did them and that people remember them. At the time, show you how different the world is, at the time that, that we did Paul McCartney, he had never done any American television interview in 10 years. And this is before the explosion of, I guess Entertainment Tonight existed, but the Access Hollywoods and the Extras and the Inside Editions didn't, and obviously the Internet didn't, and all the social media didn't, and now just about everybody, there are exceptions, but just about everybody is pretty much available to one extent or another. But it was a big, big deal that Paul McCartney came on the show. And we recorded for an hour and used every second of it. So <laughs> when you remove the commercials, that became three shows um, of, of later. And to hear him describe writing a song with John Lennon um, and how, you know, some songs, like for example, McCartney wrote Yesterday. But it be, it, they were all, by agreement, Lennon-McCartney songs. And some songs John wrote, but others they collaborated on. And he's talking about them sitting around, and he, McCartney, says, it's getting better all the time. And Lennon says, by nature of his personality, can't get much worse. And then I can hear McCartney, I wish I could imitate his, uh, his accent. Oh, yes. My God, you know better than I no. do. No, get, it, get it down, yep. get it down. And, and, but then to also hear him say, I, I said to him, you know, there's a notion that you were the melody maker and John was the cultural voice. And while there may have been some truth in that, there was large overlap. And I listed some songs that, that were pretty gritty that Paul either had primarily written or written himself. And he said, you know, I accept that. I understand that. But John and I had different lives. Neither of us grew up rich, but John had a really tough life with his dad and his mother and, and what. It, and part of what gave John his greatness was that unhappiness. And in order to be greater, if I had to be more unhappy, 
I'll take the happier life. He said something like that. That's not exactly the quote, but it was like that. I'll take the happier life. And he was such a nice and and accessible man um, that, you know, you don't forget stuff like that. And when when they say that you're going to interview Paul McCartney, who they bring in through a separate service elevator, because after all, he's Paul McCartney. And he's listed, by the way, on the guest list as Rodney Dangerfield that night, which I also would have enjoyed, right, by the way. Sure. I, I, I did interview Rodney Dangerfield on HBO, but never on, on later. And you sit there at age 40 or 41 talking to Paul McCartney, but in your mind's eye, you're 11, sitting on the floor in your parents' living room watching the Beatles on a black-and-white TV on Ed Sullivan in 1964. And you're saying, wow... I wonder who that I went to high school with is watching this now, and what are they thinking? Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and anytime I hear that song, I think of that interview because that YouTube clip has been up for 10 years, and I, I never knew the story. So I love that show. I know you have a meeting to go to, so I guess a couple more minutes. Um, Dick Enberg decided um, yeah. to go do Padre Baseball. That was his decision, quit the network. Is this something that uh, you see your career path? You do the network stuff, and then someday... be finishing off with a team. I know you've, I think you've said before, that's yeah. like the one thing you've wanted to do baseball-wise is be with a team for a year. If I did do one sport, it would only be baseball. Um, I'm a big basketball fan, and especially the NBA, and I follow it closely. But I had my run on the NBA, and they were good years, and that's fine. But if I, if I did one sport, it would be baseball. But you have to make concessions to your personal life, too. And if I could get a situation where it was only home games... Or only games. Let's here. Here we are in Chicago, let's say. And if it was, yeah, yeah. But you can go to St. Louis. You can go to Milwaukee. Um, go to New York if you want to. But you don't have to go to every game in this city or that. No disrespect meant. But I would only do it if, if it was respectful of the fans of the team and the other broadcasters involved in the team. If I wasn't unfairly pushing someone aside. If I was a welcome addition but not someone who had bogarted someone else's position and where it seemed to fit with the fans. And I guess the, the, the only real place where that might be 100% true would be St. Louis. Would I be open to it? Yeah, I'd be open to it. Do I think it's likely to happen? A lot of stars would have to align for it to happen. I think what's more likely is that at some point, when my schedule opens up a little bit, um, I do a month or two of minor league baseball. <laughs> just for the pure experience of being the voice of some team in Greenville or Chattanooga or Toledo or uh, Asheville, um, to do like a Bull Durham-type experience, just as, uh, as somebody once said, for the love of the game. Bob, I chased you down way back in 94 for public access, and today I just walked into a truck and said, let's do a podcast. So it's, it's been fun over knowing you this, this many years. Is that the one that Terry Bradshaw and Dennis Miller were also part of? Before a banquet in St. Louis, we did. I did. You there? You had one with Ditka, but then you allowed me into your office. We did a two-camera shoot. I had no idea how to work the equipment. It took us about an hour and a half to set up in your office. You were doing some dealings, and uh, but then we sat down and we we did an interview like why, this. Why do we both remember this stuff so well? <laughs> this 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 indicates a weird that we have a weird sort of chip in our brains, which most of the time just probably makes us annoying. Mm -hmm. But in this circumstance, it's useful. Cannot say how much fun it is to have Bob Costas know who you are and say nice things about you uh, and give you compliments. Um, so it's, it's just a pleasure to be 
uh, cordial with Mr. Costas. Like I said, a broadcast legend and uh, someone I looked up to as a child wanting to do what he did. And again, like Joe Buck, I follow his footsteps and here I am doing a podcast and here there he is doing everything from the Olympics to the Kentucky Derby and everything in between. Once again, you're listening to a best of as I'm basically giving you some of the best broadcasters, uh, some of my favorite broadcasters that I've talked to uh, nationally. I have a few other ideas coming up here, but uh, I definitely hope you're enjoying it and would love to have some more sponsors like my title sponsor, Masses Restaurants, five locations in St. Louis. There's no baloney in the cannelloni. I've talked about Masses a lot here, but they are my title sponsor. There's five locations in St. Louis. It's affordable. It's refreshing. It's got a great atmosphere. You can go and just sit at the bar and enjoy a drink and some cheese bread, or you can get a big meal, have a, have a date, just a nice quaint special date night out, or you can have a big Saturday night with your friends. Masses is perfect for all of those. So I thank Masses for being my title sponsor. Once again, in 2019, looking for more sponsors, so find me on Twitter at Brad Stravenger. We'll continue the podcast now with uh, an interview I did with Chip Carey. Chip Carey, the Braves broadcaster, uh, but more famously, Harry Carey's grandson, Skip Carey's son, and um, Chip comes through town every year, and he's a great guy. But uh, that's a big name to have. If you're a baseball broadcaster, the Carey name is known in baseball. So we talk about that, but we start with his, his days of working with the Orlando Magic. Uh, a documentary had just come out on Shaq and Penny, uh, the 30 for 30 at this point, and I wanted to hear a good Shaq story since Chip Carey's first big job was being the voice of the Orlando Magic. And then we move into having those big shoes to fill that we talked about. So here's a little portion of that interview with Chip Carey. Do you have any, it's hard to do this on the fly, behind the curtain, great Shaq moment, oh, something, yeah. yeah, anything that kind of stands out that you remember from a road trip or anything? A million of them. Uh, one of them in particular, we had a game in uh, Atlanta and there was a huge storm. It was one of those nasty uh, winter storms where the uh, uh, ice is all over the place. And we take off and we're circling behind Tampa because the storm is passing through Orlando and the, the pilot said, we're not going through that. We're just going to circle for an hour, hour and a half until we decide to punch through. Well, the storm was moving slower than they thought. So we finally did have to punch through, and the plane is going up and down, up and down. I mean, we're dropping a thousand feet, going up a thousand feet. Guys are throwing up all over on the plane. Shaq is uh, in his 54th or 55th game, which was twice as many games as he would play in a college season, and he is wiped out. He is on a couch asleep. He slept through this whole thing. But we hit a pocket of air, and we had some food on the plane. Our food popped up off the plate and came down. Well, the same thing happened to Shaq. At 7'1", 300 pounds, we hit a pocket of air, and Shaquille O'Neal levitated about six inches off of his couch and landed with a very soft thud and never woke up. And we said to ourselves, how in the world is this possible? A, that he could be that tired, and B, not know what's going on. But uh, he was the life of the party. Everything you see of, of his work on TNT and the way he acts, he was exactly like that as a teenager and a 20-year-old in Orlando. And uh, was always great with me, uh, great family, and overcame a lot himself to, uh, to have a great family and great success. So I'm thrilled for him. The Cubs, you go work for the Cubs, and uh, we all get to watch you here in St. Louis and mm-hmm. across the country, of course, and then the Sammy and the McGuire thing. I still think, I don't care what people say about the era, it was so much fun. And I know it's kind of hard to even say that with, you don't want kids to do this stuff, but the fact that it was fun. 
what was it like in Chicago? What was the the Cubs' point of view and and trying to ch- you know the whole chase? It was a it was a St. Louis Chicago thing. It was a bringing baseball back. I mean, when, and then you get to call these home runs and you're having the the time of your life. I would assume. Yeah, it was. It was bittersweet though because I was supposed to work with my grandfather and never got a chance to. He died, so he missed all of that, and so I went from being. Uh, uh, the guy that's going to host the pregame show and sort of a fill-in middle-inning guy and do the road games guy to the guy that's sort of thrust into the seat with Steve Stone and national TV. It was hard uh, to follow Harry. I mean, almost, my dad always said there were two people who could have done it, him or me, and I was the guy that drew the short straw, if you want to call it that way. But, uh, yeah, 98 was great. It came out of nowhere. Being a Cardinal fan, I had no really understanding or appreciation of the Cub culture. Um, and... It, Cardinal fans won. Cubs fans watched the Cardinals win. They didn't really know how to handle that very well. And to see this happen and go uh, from not much expectation to making the playoffs and the way that they did it in the final weekend and the playoff game and the one-game playoff at Wrigley Field and, and Mark Grace squeezing that ball and the utter joy that Cubs fans felt at finally getting into postseason play again, uh, that was great. And you're right, the McGuire-Sosa thing, we can say we knew, and we can still say, we can even say now, we know. We don't know. We don't know if guys are still doing it now. And while I'm not advocating it, I think that um, we have to sit back and just enjoy the moment for what it was. I don't compare McGuire and Sosa to Barry Bonds. I don't compare them to Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig. They were what they were, and at the time they did it, it was great theater. The Cubs would play in the day. Sammy would hit a home run. McGuire would play at night. He'd hit a home run. It was great theater. It brought people back to the game. People were very disillusioned after 94 still. And uh, when the Cubs and Cardinals are good, baseball business is good. And it was great for business. It was great for me. It levitated my career. The Kerry Wood game um, was certainly a highlight, and watching those guys get together and and come out and, and be as good as they were so 98 was a very special year a bittersweet year but a very special year no doubt I just feel like when I go to Wrigley it's special I would imagine sitting up top when when your grandfather's pictures above you every time they go to the seventh inning stretch was it sort of kind of pinch yourself type moments up there because and and Steve Stone we Mm -hmm. all grew up on Harry and Steve and Mm -hmm. Skip and Pete Van Weren I mean that's more baseball was seen of Cubs and, and Braves out of anywhere what was it? Uh, was it that kind of thing for you to be at Wrigley Field and, and knowing the 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 history and just being a Cub announcer? Well, you got immersed into it right away. It was culture shock, like I said, and and it was hard because I'm in his booth. I'm working with his partner, sitting behind his chair, in his chair, in his desk, uh, with his director. I mean, all those people were Harry's guys, and uh, they welcomed me as best they could. But ultimately, it's a performance based business. You either can do it or you can't. Um, Steve Stone was phenomenal to me. We had one production meeting, and we drove. Uh, it was opening day in Miami, and he rented a car, and he said, uh, how's this going to work? And I said, as far as I'm concerned, you've forgotten more about baseball than I'm going to know. The ball's in play. I'm going to say what happened, and you're going to tell me why. And that was pretty much the extent of it. So anyone who knows Steve, he has a very dry, almost sarcastic sense of humor. We finished the first game. I think the Cubs lost, shocker. And <laughs> Steve takes off his headset and throws it on the table and makes this clunk sound. And I, I'm terrified. I'm looking at him like, what? He said, that was just great. Just like that. And I said, what do you mean? And he leaned over and he shook my hand and he said, I want to thank you because with all due respect to your grandfather, for the first time in six or seven years, I feel like I'm on a broadcast team. And it was, a, it was an eye-opening moment because uh, there are a lot of people in our business who believe that a broadcast is about the play-by-play guy or the guy that talks the most. It's not. It's really about the fans, number one. But number two, to make it work, it has to be an analyst-driven game. And there was uh, <laughs> there aren't many better than Steve Stone. And he was 
fantastic to work with. My partner Joe Simpson's the same way. It's really easy to be a good play-by-play guy when you tee the ball up and hand them a 7-iron and they hit it 150 down the middle. And I've really been blessed with all the people I've worked with to have that experience. Yeah, Harry was a guy that seemed like didn't want anybody in the booth. And I saw you took a picture of Jack Buck, and Jack Buck even said, he didn't he didn't let me do any of the moments. Yeah. But uh, you grew up on Jack Buck. I mean, I would assume that's who you think about maybe more as a broadcaster. How does that work for you? Because Jack was the guy we all listened to. Well, sure. I mean, I, I, I was the typical AM transistor radio guy, Jack and uh, Bob Starr and Jay Randolph and Ron Jacober. I mean, I you know I know all the, all about that stuff, and it was it was great. And you know, I, I'm not fully aware of the history of my grandfather and Jack Buck. I know it was at times prickly, but they they certainly um, made up at the you know the end of their respective careers, which is which is terrific. But uh, you know, Harry was Harry was from what I understand a very difficult guy in this respect. Um, he was an orphan. He didn't have family. He didn't really understand the value of family until much later in life. He didn't understand parents, and his his dad left him when he was young. His mom died when he was very young, so he didn't really have that kind of upbringing. He was a hard scrabble street guy who had to fight for every single thing that he had in his life, and as a result, he was not the kind of guy that would turn the other cheek. And um, people who didn't take the time to understand that about him uh, never got him. Um, but he, um, Harry, was in the business of being Harry. And my dad told a story to me years ago, obviously, that uh, he'd come home from college and he'd meet dad at Sportsman's Park and they want to go have a bite to eat and he's signing autographs, Harry, Harry, Harry. And he just, my dad said, I didn't want him to be Harry, I just wanted him to be dad. And it took him a long, long time to understand that difference, that it was okay to put the Harry persona in a box and let your hair down. You can cry. You can give somebody a hug and tell them you love them. Um, and, I, and in a way, I feel very sad for Harry in that respect. He didn't, he didn't know that he had this whole support system of a family who cared about him as a patriarch, not as a broadcaster. And uh, I am at least glad at the end of his life that uh, Dutchie, his wife, helped him introduce, helped introduce him to uh, how important that is. And, and I think uh, at the end, he got it. And then you and Skip got back together, so everything kind of worked out towards the end there, correct? Absolutely, yeah. I left the Cubs and came back in 05 and got a chance to hang out with my dad. And, and it sounds so strange. Our business is great. Our, our career is great. Uh, we live in life sandbox. Uh, but it does take a toll on your family. And uh, to be able to, in the last years of my dad's life, take him to the doctor, take him to lunch, drive him to and from the ballpark, pick up his bags and take him to his room, do things that any normal son would do, whether they're living in town or going to the grocery store or the hardware store. Uh, I never got that chance, really, until I was in my 30s. And uh, when I was able to hand my then-newborn daughter to my dad at the airport gate one time, I, I was bawling like a baby because it was almost like things had started to come full circle. And he and I were never estranged, uh, but we were apart because of our, ge- our geography, where we were in our lives, and this business. And as I said at the start, uh, the great thing about baseball is it always comes full circle. Life always comes full circle. And for us, the common thread of that was this great game and what we call the family business. Hope you're enjoying this edition of Here's the Pitch as I'm running through some of my older interviews and picking out the good stuff. I think they're all good. I try to make them good. Uh, hopefully you enjoy them. But uh, these were my favorite clips from uh, Bob Costas and Joe Buck and Chip Carey. And I'll finish it off with a conversation I had back in February of 2018 with Greg Amsinger. Amsinger, also a St. Louis, and all four of these people spent a lot of times in St. Louis, three of them born and raised in St. Louis. Amsinger, born here, went to Lindenwood, and then his career shot like a rocket, and now he's the lead 
anchor on MLB tonight. You love him on MLB Network. I do. I'm a big fan. So we talk about that meteoric rise and how he basically figured out a way to differentiate himself. And I love what he does on MLB Network. And we talk about that. And then we move into players uh, maybe not liking his style. And he's got one in particular, a great story coming up here. So here's a great game singer. What, so, you know, I had MLB Network, I think, fairly early on because it wasn't available at all times. But I obviously, honestly didn't see you on CBS Sports where you kind of got your your first big break. But did you always have this this style of uh, just being able just to be a fan? I call you a fan on the set. And I just think I hate, you know, I hate doing this to my guests. But I just think you're the best at what you do. I think I just think you can tell you love the game. But you don't have the hi everybody and welcome to baseball MLB tonight, right? And I just Thanks, feel Ron. like it's it's it seems like that the people up there obviously understand that your love and your passion comes across, and people love that. And I think you see it with everybody that's on there. Vescursion is the same way, and, and like we mm-hmm. said, Fran and and um, Servino, all the guy. I think it's just a, it, you know I, I get crazy about this network. I love the, I love baseball, and then I get the chance to do, like I said, ten times a year I get to work with some of these people. But just tell me, did that? Was that how you start? I mean, did they, was that what you were doing at CBS, that sort of that style? And you just said, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to be myself. I'm going to show the excitement because it, it's not, you do not anchor a show like many anchors do. Yeah, it's, it starts back when um, I was told with a, a year into my two-year contract at CSTV, College Sports Television. So I moved to New York at the age of 24 to this big break, a new startup national network not big but you know it was to me it was coast to coast and i thought that was awesome coming out of Terre Haute, indiana where i started my career and i i got pulled aside and there were two anchors uh that started the network it was me and adam zucker who is thriving on cbs sports now as the host of sec football and does college basketball for cbs and they said look greg um we're gonna have to let you go we're not gonna pick up your option and I was like so bummed out because I would get to work six hours before a show. I'd write all my scripts. I was buttoned up. And then it ended up becoming what I always thought was awful about SportsCenter was who's more clever, this host or that host? And it just became this weird ping pong match that had nothing to do with the viewers at home watching. And it's why I, I just couldn't watch SportsCenter anymore. You had, you had two hosts that were trying to one up the other. And I fell into that trap. And Adam Zucker is insanely clever. He's a better writer than I, I ever was. And he was thriving and I was not. So they told me, look, we're going to let you go. You got about, you know, a month and a half left when your deal's up. And I was like, okay. And I go back home and here I am. I'm 25. I got a baby and I got my wife and I go, hey, we're not going to make it. So I give all the credit to my wife, Erica, who was in the business. She worked with me in our uh, startup uh, station in Terre Haute. She sat me down and she's like, look, so what are you going to do for the next month and a half? Are you going to go and grind and overthink everything? Or are you going to kind of worry about your demo tape that you're going to send out to other stations? What kind of broadcaster do you want to be at these other stations? Because the next month and a half, someone's going to hire you based on the way you are. And I was like, what a great idea. So screw all of this script writing and showing up way early and no one's patting you on the back in this business, man. I like it. You know, Le- it less work, better performance. I always say work smarter. Is more. Work smarter, it's not harder, bad. Greg. This is this is what I teach out there to the kids of America. Work yes. smarter, not harder. 
Thank it's you. exactly the way it works, man. <laughs> Walk in with a better personality, a better like zest for life. You know, don't be like spent by the time you get on the air. So I would stroll in now minutes before my call time. Obviously, the network thought I was mailing it in because I was going to lose my job. And then I wouldn't write a single script, Brad. <laughs> I would host hour, two hour shows at Adam Zucker. And Zucker's like, what are you doing? I'm like, dude, I'm good. I'm good. And this is, we're, listen, we're talking, we're not talking baseball anymore. I'm talking college volleyball. I'm talking about the NCAA Division II Women's Lacrosse National Championship game. I'm talking about, you know, wrestling. Okay, these are all college sports. I, I'm like, I'm going to wing it. I, I, I was well-read. I did my homework the night before. I'm good. And I would go, and I would just ad-lib. And, oh, my goodness, it changed my career. It just did. I would give my opinion, and so I got some pushback on it. And then out of nowhere, we get a new executive that gets hired in a month. And he goes, hey, um, I'm thinking about starting a new show. And I'd like for you to audition for it. I go, wait a minute. So I have a, a job that I'm about to get let go of, but you're going to let me audition for a new show on a network that I hope to be brought back to. And he's basically like, yeah, his name was Michael Rosen. Starts a new show called The One College Sports Show. They audition a bunch of women. And the one that stood out from the crowd, it wasn't even close, ended up being my co-host for the next three and a half years. And that was Michelle Beadle. And Michelle Beadle and I, together on television, it was awesome. And so what we ended up doing was like, um, you know, uh, Kelly and well now it's Kelly and Ryan, but back when I was growing up, it was Kelly and Regis. So it was like Kelly and Regis on a couch, like talking about college sports. And we would like, we were like the main anchors of the network doing the show and no one really saw it, but man, I got to tell you, it was good. And our side anchor was Adam Zucker. He would do like highlights. And then our update anchor was, uh, Catherine Tappan and no one ever saw the show. If these four anchors on the show, they're all young and starting their career. And the show kind of started because of my new and my new age conversational opinion based approach to sports casting because I thought I was going to lose my job. And it started this whole new wave at the network and CBS bought the network and Tony Petiti renamed the network CBS Sports Network. Then he left to be the CEO of the new MLB Network startup, and he took me with him because he knew what the format was going to be. He knew I was from St. Louis and I loved baseball, but I think he liked the fact that I wasn't a cookie-cutter broadcaster. And, you know, I remember working at KMOX Radio, and I don't want to be long-winded, but McGraw and Millhaven at the time worked at KMOX, and I think McGraw is a super talent. And I told him, hey, I got a job out of college at a CBS TV station in Terre Haute, Indiana. Do you have any advice? And his advice was something I'll never forget, and I told I tell every single young broadcaster this. His advice was, assume you're going to fail, but there will be video evidence that you were on TV. So when people watch these old clips of you, make sure it's something that you're at least proud of. <laughs> I go, wait a minute, what does that mean? And he goes, you're going to have a million people who are going to tell you how to be on TV or how to be on the radio. But if you assume you're going to fail anyway, do you really want to go down doing it all of their way, why not do it yours? Do it your own. And I was like, unbelievable. That advice came back and hit me in the face when I was talking to my wife when she was like, just, you know, you got to do it a different way. This is the way I want to be on TV. And I got to tell you, we've hired different producers and CPs along the way that came over from ESPN that have walked into my office after I've been on MLB Network for four or five years, and they'll go, just so you know, um, people at home don't want your opinion. 
And I'm like, just so you know, you just walked into my office and you pissed me off. Can you walk out? Because I, I don't want you in here anymore. Um, this is how I'm going to do my job. And if, if someday they have an epiphany and they don't want me to do it this way, please let me go because I'll find someone who will let me talk on TV. That's the way I look at it. Where were you a couple years ago when I needed uh, some some people to be talked to like that? I didn't, I didn't get the chance to... Because <laughs> I got pissed off daily, and I just decided that the grind of baseball just it really did get to me. So it was, uh, you know, but that's a that's a great story, and I, I, you know, I don't care if that was long winded. I think it was awesome. So thank you, man. I, I just don't want to uh, worry about entertaining the masses because there is always a group within the masses that think you suck. So I'm just gonna entertain myself. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you I love it. You've made it. That's I mean, you, if you can say that at your age, that's pretty awesome. Um, do you hear from players? I mean, not, not just you, but your bosses, and they're like, "Hey, stop talking about me." I, you know, I'm hurt or whatever. No, uh, it's yeah, I I, uh, it, I don't understand why, but there are some players who really care about what I think, and <laughs> it's it blows me away. So, uh, Jason Worth and I do not see eye to eye. <laughs> and I come from a place where because I'm in the media, that doesn't mean that I committed a felony or broke into your house and stole your TV and, you know, uh, threatened a relative. I'm not, a, I'm not a bad guy because I'm, I'm on television. Right. And you're a public figure. If you play major league baseball, my job is to talk about public figures and I, this also goes back to me giving my opinion in an industry that most people that have my job don't give their opinion. But I, like you called me a fan on TV, I just try to represent the fans. I just try to say what a fan at home would think. And sometimes fans don't want to hear it, and they get pissed off too, and that's totally fine. By all means, I, I am not running for office. I am not looking for your vote. Listen, I just want you to watch TV. You just made right? this Cardinal fan mad just telling me that I need to calm down. See, now I'm mad at you. There you go, and that's fine. The chances are that's going to be like, hey, this guy Amsinger totally gets under my skin. I got to watch him all the time, right? You're my Rachel so, Maddow. <laughs> right, right, right. That's what I've become in your life. So he did not like me, and to be honest with you, the way how grumpy he played the game, I didn't like him either. And I'm okay saying that. I I, I don't play by the same journalistic rules. Don't make yourself part of the story. No, I I love the game of baseball. This guy has a $120 million contract, and he's running around with a frown on his face, always looking pissed off, and there's no joy whatsoever in the guy. And he's anti-media. He makes fun of broadcasters. I don't, I don't need to kiss his ass. We lost you again, Greg. Can, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, right there. Don't, don't stay I, out of the bathtub. <laughs> I, I'm not going to in the bathtub anymore. Uh, I, I went for a stretch where I didn't say his name. I just called him the bearded one. So I didn't say anything rude about him. I just called him the bearded one. <laughs> Every time he did anything, it was the bearded one. And Mark DeRosa came in my office once and he goes, I got to be honest with you, Greg. Jason Worth wants to hurt you. <laughs> and I'm like, that's fine, man. I'm like, that's totally cool. He's, you don't understand. He, he, he wants to hurt you. I'm like, Mark, if he, if he ever hits me, I'm going to lay down and act like I can't feel my hair. I'm not going to fight back. I'm like, guys, worth $120 million. I don't condone violence. I don't want to fight anybody. It's ridiculous that people get this upset. But it is what it is. You can't control it. People are going to take your your criticism and they're going to think it's a 
personal attack on who they are as a human being. And that's not where I come from. I'm not trying to be mean to anyone. But just because I'm a broadcaster doesn't give you the right to be mean to me. So it goes both ways. And I kind of I kind of lead by that approach. Just, you know, I don't have stars in my eyes. All these people are people. Uh, we're all public figures, including me. You have the right to, uh, you know, put up a blog talking about how this interview is one of the worst experiences you ever had. And Greg Amstinger is a total jerk. You have the right to do that. I'm a public figure. You can come at me all you want. I just wish people understood these are the rules that we're playing by. Really enjoyed my chat with Greg Amsinger from MLB Network. I'll have him on here again in 2019, and uh, there will be much more baseball talk on Here's the Pitch, along with other types of people from around the world. Uh, just recently talked to a guy who wrote a book about David Letterman, so we just talked about David Letterman. And I've talked to Brother Love from the WWF. He was a, a bad guy. Talked to MTV's Alan Hunter. So that's what we're doing here. We're talking baseball. We're talking all kinds of stuff, but hopefully you enjoyed a little best of. I'll, I'll give you a few more of these. I think I have a few more ideas for best ofs, but uh, basically putting this together for sponsors to hear kind of what we do here on Baseball and Beyond and some of the people that have been on. You can find us now on Spotify and on Google Play along with Stitcher and TuneIn. It's called Here's the Pitch. I've changed the name. Hopefully you're enjoying the new name change. That's a big deal, but I appreciate all the people out there that listen I do get the stats that come through every day, and it looks like now that I've put this thing back into motion, a lot of people are checking it out, and I do appreciate that very much. So once again, you can find me on Twitter, Brad Strobinger. You can look at my blog page. It tells you everything I'm doing, bradsportspage.blogspot.com. basically gives a rundown of all the things I have been doing and all the things I plan on doing here in 2019, and also go to my YouTube channel and subscribe there. Just search ST Weekly, formerly Sports Talk Weekly, the cable access show I did. It's shortened down to ST Weekly. Go over there, subscribe, find some of the interviews here. I put all these podcast interviews on YouTube as well. Uh, Stuttering John has the most views right now, currently around 60,000 views. I put that thing up uh, six or seven months ago and about 60,000 views of that podcast alone. So Definitely a lot of people looking at these and listening to them, and hopefully you are too. I appreciate you listening to this one and uh, continue uh, checking your iTunes podcast queue as I'll be putting these out a little more frequently in 2019. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being my podcast friends, and we'll see you next time.